זו הזדמנות להתחיל עידן חדש בעולם. זו הזדמנות להתחיל עידן חדש ביחסים בין יהודים וערבים ולאזרחים הערבים של מדינת ישראל. Hey, this is your weekly dose. No, 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 no. This is your overdose of Israeli elections. That's right. Here's where we give you more than you ever wanted to know about Israel's fourth election cycle in the two years. Salvo and some wise guys are already talking about the fifth election. Speaking of guys, Angel, have you noticed that the entire Israeli political system is currently a bunch of guys? Yeah, we have 20 parties led by men. But finally this week on Tuesday, Chagit Moshe, a woman... no less, was elected as the leader of Jewish Home. And I bet you didn't have a far-right religious party electing its first woman leader on your 2021 bingo card, Dahlia. I didn't. I just wish they were even a little bit closer to crossing the threshold so that there would be one party that might get in led by a woman. I'm Dahlia Shenlin, here with Anshul Pfeffer, and together we're going to try to bring some order to all this madness. So we started with the gender problem in this Israeli election, but in this episode, we'll also be trying to unpack Israel's electoral sectors. Some call them tribes. I don't love that word for the record. We're going to start with the Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel. And to do that, we will introduce this week's guest, Mohamed Darawshe. Hello, Dalia. This episode is also special because it's the first week I can recall in quite a while when no new parties were established. Anshul, could you give us a little bit of a rundown on who's running now? Well, I don't think our listeners... want to hear an exhaustive list of, I think by now, 20 significant parties, in the, and in addition, other pond uh, scum like the Pirates and other things which will be running. But it does look like the spawning period of the 2021 campaign is finally over. No new parties this week, not even existing parties splitting. And on the other hand, we have yet to see parties merging. As we record this episode, we have only two weeks left until the February 4th deadline for filing candidates lists with the Central Election Commission. And we can expect the next week or so to be full of mergers. For now, though, they're still trying to enlist new and attractive candidates to boost their poll numbers, especially to increase their bargaining power in the mergers. Okay, so who were the interesting people who joined interesting parties this week? Well, interesting is a bit of an exaggeration, but there are a few notable new recruits. Mainly this week in the right-wing parties, Gidon Saar's New Hope Party recruited Jordan Valley local council head David El-Khayani, who more importantly is the chairman of the settlers' Yesha council. El-Khayani is hardly a household name, but his inclusion does burnish New Hope and Saar's credentials as the challengers of Netanyahu's Likud for leadership of the right wing. And it's important to point out that El-Khayani, if, if there was any doubt about where he stands politically, He criticized the Trump plan as being too generous to the Palestinians and thought that Netanyahu is not sufficiently supportive of settlements in case anybody thought that Saar's party was heading towards the center. Yeah, which is another reason why Likud are attacking now New Hope and saying that El-Khayani was the guy who scuppered annexation under the Trump plan. Now, the other right-wing challenge, and Aftali Bennett has added new candidate to his Yamina party this week, Abir Kara, leader of the Shulman's protest movement. The Shulman's are a... It's an interesting phenomenon. It's a group of small business owners who claim they've been screwed over by the government. They've been around for less than a couple of years, held a few protests, but so far their main existence is on Facebook, where they have 210,000 friends. Naturally, the rumor mill is speculating that they're not really an independent group, but that they're secretly working on behalf of an existing party under false cover, maybe even Trojan horses of Netanyahu. who will defect from Bennett and join his coalition after the election. Their actual electoral weight has yet to be assessed in a real context. 
And also we've had the epidemiologist, Professor Hagai Levin, who has acquired a degree of media stardom over the coronavirus pandemic. He's joined Moshe Yalon's Telem Party, highlighting one more way in which coronavirus is stirring in politics nowadays. But we know from bitter experience that political careers of academic or professional stars are usually very short and nearly always end in tears. That's so true. Now, for a couple of the parties, uh, the final word on who will be the leader and what their list will look like will be decided by primaries. But the primary system has always been kind of touch and go in Israel. It's, it's actually got a young history. Primaries were only really introduced to the big parties in the early 1990s. Not all parties hold them. Some parties decide during each cycle, whether to hold them or not. This time, Angela, as you mentioned, the Jewish home held their primary this week, and on this coming Sunday, Labor will be holding its primaries. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. In other minor news, America has a new president. What's the Israeli angle on this? Well, uh, Netanyahu basically lost his biggest political ally and someone, we're not mentioning names, because we don't know them. Somebody put up these big bell billboards around the country mocking the Trump-Netanyahu friendship as if that's a bad thing after January 6th. Someone else bought billboards welcoming President Biden and Vice President Harris as heralding a new era in the U.S.-Israel friendship. Gidon Saar, Netanyahu's biggest rival, has begun to kind of take stake out a position on this too, and he's saying he'll rebuild bipartisan relations with the U.S., which is an implicit critique uh, of Netanyahu. And what I really want to know about all this, of course, is who's going to see those billboards? We're still in lockdown. Israel extended the lockdown this week to the end of January due to very high infection rates right alongside the world's highest vaccination rates. This is like the 2021 version of the horse race. And actually, each side of that divide, uh, the vaccination rates and the infection rates, sort of represent one of Netanyahu's narratives. So the pro-BB camp is saying, well, he brought the vaccine. He's saving us. And the people who are looking at the infection rates are saying, BB's bad because he didn't manage this well and we're all still suffering in lockdown. Well, you may not have noticed in your Tel Aviv bolt hole, Dalia, but the lockdown isn't being particularly well observed. The roads are packed with cards, filled with people seeing the billboards. And even those who are actually staying home will be seeing the billboards on television or on the internet. But I don't think this campaign will be a billboard campaign anyway. I think there, there's other things brewing. If I may add, uh, Dalia, there is a talk already about possibly delaying the elections. You have Kish, the Deputy Minister of Health, yesterday said that if the conditions, if the corona conditions will worsen, that he will recommend to the elections committee to delay the elections. So I think that what Netanyahu will be looking for is possibly picking the exact date or the back exact week which will be most suitable for him when the pandemic is maybe over or when Israel will have some kind of control over it so he can have a success or victory image that he can give to the Israeli public. At the end of the day, all of these closures, unfortunately, are more of political nature and less of health nature. That is one of the big debates. So you think he's sort of tailoring the timing to help him. How are his rivals dealing with this? Well, another development this week that Gidon Saar did is hire the top American star consultants who started the Lincoln Project in the hope of challenging Netanyahu with sophisticated strategy. This is actually something both Angel and I wrote about this week. Angel, why do you think it matters? I don't know yet if it matters, but I think that there is an opportunity here for Gidon Saar to use that narrative that the Lincoln Project established in the U.S. The Lincoln Project was a group of Republican uh, campaign strategists who are what is called never-Trumpers, people who may have been veterans of the Republican Party but would never agree to support Donald Trump. And they uh, produced a series of quite devastating ads on television and on the web, really getting under Donald Trump's skin and hammering away 
at the weakest spots in both in Trump's uh, policy and personality. And this is what Sarah is also trying to create. Sarah is trying to present New Hope as a party which is the real Likud. Ideologically, New Hope and at least pre-Netanyahu Likud are identical. And he wants to make this about how Netanyahu has ruined Likud and is therefore unsuitable both to lead the right wing in Israel and to be the prime minister. And that's very much what the Lincoln Project was. If he's going to uh, produce these kinds of ads, it's, we're going to have a very interesting and hopefully amusing election campaign ahead. So we have top strategists against a prime minister who can mastermind the elections. Mohammed thinks it's all political. Clearly. I mean, it's a, it's a third lockdown, and I think the timing of the elections in Israel came and was firmed only after Israel was able to secure the vaccines. Otherwise, I think Netanyahu would have pushed it to May or July when he would probably have better control. Well, he tried to do it, to push it to May or June, and that was the one tiny uh, victory of blue and white that they managed to force Netanyahu's hand and have a slightly earlier election. Exactly. So they're sort of uh, fighting with different tools here. Uh, Let's zoom out of the headlines a little bit. In this episode, we're going to start breaking down what some people call Israel's tribes. I put that in quotation marks because we can debate how well the term really works. I always like to qualify it that the tribes are not laws of nature. Uh, Demography is not your political destiny. People are much more complicated than, you know, which category they fit into in society. But having said all that, There's also an argument to mangle an old cliche that in Israel, all politics is sectoral. The sectors can be broken down in a few ways. Uh, Typically, we think of them based on one speech that President Rivlin gave some years ago, secular Jews, national religious people, ultra-Orthodox, Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel and former Soviet immigrants. Some vocal analysts also argue that Mizrahim are a tribe. Others would say the gender divide is growing. But for sure, there's no hotter tribe right now in the Israeli political discourse than Arab-Palestinian voters. Instead of using tribes, I would say it's components. Components. I mean, Israel has many, many components. And I would also uh, speak against the very clear-cut division between these components. Many people have multiple identities. Many people have uh, two or three identities. And the sum identity of someone doesn't have to be 100%. It could be 200%. I mean, for me, being Israeli, maybe it's not a full identity because there's marginalization in, in this process that has been taking place for the last 73 years. So maybe I'm 90% Israeli, but maybe I'm also 90% Palestinian because I'm not planning to live in a future Palestinian state. What does that make me? 180%. What about my Arab identity? What about my Muslim identity? I mean, these are layers of identity or cycles of identity that looking at them as a single identities and trying to divide people based on that, I think is not right. Because I have a lot of probably common identities with you or with Anshil who are talking about football. That's part of my <laughs> cultural identity. Before we go on, since you've talked about identity, let me introduce you. Very happy to welcome uh, Mohamed Darawshe. He's the director of the Center for Equality and Shared Society at Givat Chaviva and an expert in conflict resolution and a researcher at the Hartman Institute. And he's on a leave of absence from both during the elections. <laughs> He's also a fellow at the Robert Bosch Academy in Berlin. He's previously served as co-director for the Abraham Funds Initiative. Uh, He was elected council member of his hometown of Ixal, where he joins us from today. And most important for our purposes, he's also just established a new party, a joint Arab-Jewish list called Ma'an, which means together. Exactly. For a new era. So there's nothing hotter right now than the Arab-Israeli voter. It it really is the most fashionable of of talking points in in this election. And I I actually agree with Mohammed. I'm not a huge fan of the dichotomy of the tribes, but 
We do have to take into account that in the last election, just a year ago, 90% of Arab Israeli votes went for, for the joint list. And now the joint list is, is looking a bit disjointed with <coughs> Mansour Abbas's Ram, the Islamist party, which is one of the four parties making up the joint list, openly considering going his own way. We've got Benjamin Netanyahu, who after four elections since 2015, in which he used incitement against Arab Israelis to rally his Likud base, he's now openly courting Arab Israelis. He's almost every week he's visiting another Arab Israeli town, usually the vaccination center there. And uh, Likud have uh, seemed to be investing quite a lot in this specific part of their campaign. And as usual, when where Netanyahu goes, other parties follow. Other parties are placing Arab candidates on their list. And in another challenge to the joint list, we've got an intriguing new Arab-Israeli party with its leader sitting here <laughs> in our studio. Well, if I if I may contribute, uh, Anshel, to your previous analysis before we talk about our party, I mean, there is a vacuum that uh, the joint list has created. And uh, before Netanyahu coming in or before my uh, party coming in, uh, there was an obvious weakness uh, in the joint list. The the polls showed two things. One, that they probably will be getting only 8 to 10 seats. And other polls were showing that only 39% of Arab citizens intend to vote. And uh, mainly because uh, they failed in, uh, in two promises. One, the promise to stay united, and you referred to that. The inner fighting between them has always been the headlines of, of almost everyday uh, websites in, in the Arab community. And the second failure is effectiveness. Uh, they promised uh, before the elections that they're going to recommend Gantz for prime minister, and in exchange they'll get probably the sun and the moon. And they were able to deliver nothing, uh, not even good relations with Benny Gantz, who betrayed them the day after they recommended uh, him to the president. Before we get into the dynamics of political parties in the Arab-Palestinian community, what are the big things on people's minds? When you read the media and the, and social media, what are people talking about? It doesn't have to be a survey. It doesn't What's have to be on? a survey because it's so obvious. I mean, uh, what hurts uh, every Arab citizen is personal safety. 113 people were killed in 2020, 96 in 2019. 56 in uh, 2018. There's a significant increase, double the amount of casualties between 2018 and 2020. I mean, we are at war. We're at war. We have almost 250 casualties, more than 250 casualties in three years. And that would take Israel at war against Hezbollah or against jo Egypt, for, uh, probably, if they would do that. And the Arab citizens are basically saying, who's, who's handling this matter? That's one. The second thing, very high unemployment rate in the Arab community, especially during the corona period, where the Arab community was last to enter the job market, especially Arab women. They were first to leave the job market uh, as a result of the corona. And the same thing with uh, the age group, 18 to 24. 50% of them are not in employment and not in education. You're talking about somewhere around 150, 160,000 young Arab kids that are out there floating in society, causing that much uh, damage to themselves, that much damage to society, whether it comes through the violence or through traffic accidents or through uh, an antisocial type of behavior. I mean, the Arab community has the social aspect, has the personal safety and the economic issues. The, the fourth most important element is the issue of housing. Arab towns are, are simply going through very severe 
difficulty in this matter. Uh, the, the government which prides itself of 92 uh, economic plan of the Arab community has probably, has, we can assert today, it failed in, in delivering uh, proper plans to accommodate the needs, the increasing needs of uh, young people that need proper housing. And uh, that's why you see a lot of tension uh, developing in the Arab community. The, uh, the global issues or the regional issues are less important, at least in these elections, to the Arab citizens. So does any Zionist party have credibility? I mean, Netanyahu's making a play. We've talked about it on this show before. Is there a sense that, you know, our parties haven't been effective enough? It's time to just vote for a party that's in power. I mean, Dalia, the Arab citizens delivered 18 seats in the last elections, not 15. 15 to the joint list and three more seats were distributed between uh, the center-left and the center-right. The Likud got almost one seat in the last elections. So the fact that the government party or the party that's in, in power comes and takes votes, it happens. It's been happening since 1948 till today. Now there's a trend that because of the vacuum that was created. There's a trend that the Likud is trying to come in partially to try to get some of some extra votes in addition to what they got in the last elections, but partially to try to create that split, which already exists. I mean, they want to highlight the split inside the, the joint list between a part which wants to be more pragmatic, which is trying to go with the, uh, with the flow of the Arab public, and the part which is more ideological, you know, the parties that want to hold still uh, and can maintain their ideological debate with the state on issues of identity and things like that. So there is definitely space, and the question, who's going to fill that space? Is it going to be those government parties and Zionist parties who have failed the Arab citizens throughout the last 73 years? I mean, they usually come and knock on our doors uh, during the, the month of the elections. We call it Shahr al-Marhaba, the month of hello. Uh, people suddenly people that have never seen you before have never talked to you before they knock on your door say hello and they want to get your vote but there's a very clear expiration date on that on your vote your vote expires the day after if you vote to one of the zionist parties you they don't see you for the remaining uh, four years and and that's why there's a need today to try to create an alternative i mean when uh, there was a poll that uh, professor uh, camille fuchs did for us before we formed the uh, man uh, for new era uh, uh, our new party and it showed that 21 percent of the arab eligible voters are willing to vote for a party like this that comes and puts social economic issues on top of the agenda that comes and says even further that we want to be part of the next government in Israel, not just to be on the sidelines of the political game, but to be full players in the political game, clearly not with any kind of a coalition, clearly not with a coalition that we've experienced as an, an enemy enemy coalition. I mean, uh, the Netanyahu era has been probably the worst era in, uh, in two levels. One, in the political delegitimization of Arab citizens, such as the nation state law or the acceptance committee law, but also in economic issues. I mean, they pride themselves with 922, which... Uh, at, uh, Maybe explain what it is for our 922 was a government decision that uh, was passed in uh, the year 2015. It allocated 15 billion shekels to solve the social, economic, infrastructural issues in the Arab community. De facto, less than half of that was actually distributed in the five Much years. Much less than half. I think I read 3.5 yeah, billion. That's one. And, and what's worse than that is that the need at the time was marked at 64 billion shekels and not 15 billion shekels. So out of the 64, we, ha we hardly got six or seven billion shekels. So de facto, I don't want government decisions. I want implementation of government decisions. And that's what's not happening under Netanyahu's uh, regime.
we all know that the real election is an election that happens after uh, the election is over and we, we know the results and we know which parties are going to be in the next Knesset and we'll, the joint list will be there. Perhaps Mansour Abbas will run separately. Your party, if you cross the threshold, will be there as well. And we're hearing already talk of perhaps Netanyahu having Abbas in his coalition and Yair saying that it's no longer a question that he could join up with a joint list and I'm sure you would be amenable to uh, perhaps joining Lapid or, or someone else who is not Netanyahu. Do you think this year, this 2021 campaign is the first time in which we'll see the breaking of the biggest taboo in Israeli politics and the Arab party being part of the coalition? I hope at the end result, yes. But the discussion hasn't been, it's not the first discussion. It was that exact discussion in 1996 after the end of uh, Rabin Peres uh, period, I led the campaign of the joint list, the Democratic Arab Party and uh, the Islamic movement and the party of Ahmad Tib at the time. And our slogan was, we want to sit around the government table. We want ministerial positions. The same uh, slogan, which I also led in 1999 uh, for the Barak government, we said we want ministerial seats. I mean, this is 22 years ago, and it's still the same request of the Arab community that wants to play the full game. Now, what happened? Two things. One, we went through the delegitimization process of Arab political participation in, in or what we call power sharing. That was the strategy of Benjamin Netanyahu. And in a way, the uh, Arab political parties also were captured by the ballad rhetoric, which is uh, more of isolation and more uh, ideological type of debate instead of integration in decision making. What is missing in the, in the discourse today, I think, is how do we translate trends that are happening in the medical industry, in the high-tech industry, where you see those industries opening up, creating space for Arab uh, professional capacity. They're benefiting. They're, they're working on mutual interest. Interdependency is working so beautifully in these two arenas. By the way, in crime, unfortunately, it's also working very well between people in, in the crime industry, if we call it that way. But why can't we translate the medical success of cooperation and, and partnership between Jews and Arabs, translate it also in the political arena? I want to jump in and just point out that according to a survey that I did in April of 2019 for, for Local Call magazine, we had an overwhelming majority of the Arab sample in that survey, the Arab public, uh, Arab Palestinian citizens, who said they would like to join the coalition. In other words, this is a very accurate reflection of the general public. Or is there an internal debate about whether a party should join the coalition? That's what I want to know. Well, there is a debate. I mean, you have at least two, three powers in the Arab community that say no way because this would be seen as if we fully accept the Israeliness of the state or the Jewishness of the state. Because if you actually go into government, you'll be responsible for government decisions. So you're not only in the place of a member of the Knesset, that is their job usually is to express anger and frustration or express the pain of the Arab community. You will have ministerial responsibility for some actions that the government will take maybe for issues such as attacks on Gaza or war with the Lebanon or things like that. But the majority of the Arab community, and, and again, that poll that uh, Professor Fox did for us, 82% of the Arab citizens want in. They, they, want to, they, they want their members of the Knesset to go without handcuffs into the Knesset, without a glass ceiling of political participation. I mean, the, there's a glass ceiling that sometimes we put for ourselves. We come in with that kind of glass ceiling. And there's glass ceiling that Israeli politics has been putting to, to the Arab citizens for the past 
73 years. I mean, the closest we were to political decision-making was during the Rabin period. We still call it the golden ages of Arab citizens. If it was possible in 1990s, why, isn't, why is it not possible in 2020s? I mean, the, that's what an average Arab citizen cannot understand. Why can't I take part of the cake and not just settle for the crumbs uh, that the government will give us. Well, I, I know there is, there's a lot of accusations towards you in the Arab-Israeli sector that you're in some way ruining the solidarity that was achieved by the joint list in the previous election. What's your answer to that? Well, first of all, you yourself said that there's no clear solidarity. I mean, I, I was one of the people that pushed and supported the joint list in 2015. Uh, and in the last elections, I also uh, supported it. In 2015, I led the Get Out the Vote campaign, and when Netanyahu said they're flucking the ballots, I was flucking the ballots. I was organizing the buses. I supported more than anyone else. So we've got the droves <laughs> right here droves in our here. studio. Yes, I'm, and I'm proud of it. And I'll be happy to continue to do it. And I think that the Arab community should vote not in with 63% as they did in the last time, and not with 73% as the Jews did. We should vote at 105%. I mean, we should. So basically, really, so basically, basically, you want the Arab community to be like the ultra-Orthodox community. Where and even better. We want to perfect that model. And, and you, know, yeah. you know what? I, I said it, and I will repeat it now and i hope that uh, arab listeners will be listening to this podcast also i do not want any vote that comes from the joint list anyone that is connected to any of the political parties believe in their ideas believe in their ideologies vote for them please go vote for them but do not slide to two places one do not go to vote to the Likud or other parties that are coming to basically steal our votes and play with them against us afterwards and second do not stay at home and uh, play the game of apathy, which at the end of the day allows those that are against the Arab community to stay in power and continue to oppress our society and our community with discrimination and other uh, policies. I, I have no problem in challenging the joint list by trying to attract people that are leaving them. I do not want the eight to nine or 10 seats or 11 seats that the polls are giving them. Please, those 10% of those 10 seats go vote for the joint list. I do not want to challenge them for their political base. I want to make sure in the Arab community can produce probably 21 to 22 seats. Not only 10 seats, not only 11. I want the joint list to come and compete with me on the next 12 seats and not on their base. That would revolutionize Israeli yeah. politics. The Arab sector could really maximize its vote. Uh, thank you, Mohammed Arshad, for joining us this week on Election Overdose, and thank you so much for your fascinating insights. Great pleasure and yep. honor to be with both of you. Now, as we mentioned earlier, there are two leadership primaries in this election campaign. One took place this week on Tuesday in Jewish Home, where previous leader Rabbi Rafi Peretz has stepped down. Uh, with 56% of the votes in Jewish Home Central Committee, Chagit Moshe won the leadership race. Yeah, I wish she uh, hadn't embarrassed herself a little bit uh, by making a, some sort of a statement that indicated that she didn't really know how the Israeli political system works. And she talked about having two tickets and you can vote for prime minister and you can vote for another prime minister. And she kind of made a salad. Although I defended her because I said maybe she just misspoke. Well, beyond the distinction of being for now the only woman leading a political party in israel Chagit moshe is also one of eight deputy mayors in jerusalem most of her public career has been in jerusalem city hall so she may have been speaking 
about the system of elections in the, in the, for, for the municipalities where you do vote with two. However, what's more uh, significant about Chagik Moshe is that she's close to Betalel Smotrich, the leader of the National Religious Party, and intends to merge Jewish home with them, making her the number two and no longer the only woman leading a political party in Israel. If they all merge, and along with them, also the neo-Kahanist Jewish supremacist Otzma Yudit, Jewish Power Party, they will probably have enough to cross the threshold, essentially gathering together all the far-right votes and delivering this basket of deplorables to Netanyahu's coalition, which is why Netanyahu has been behind the scenes trying to help Chagit Moshe, and evidently he succeeded. But you want to talk about another primary, Dalia, I think, Labour's leadership race on Sunday. Well, mostly just to note that uh, another development this week is that two important people who are associated with labor are either leaving or not joining, respectively. Uh, Itzik Shmuli, who is the current Minister of Welfare, was closely associated with Israel's social protests from uh, 2011, the Israel Occupy movement. He announced that he's leaving labor. Maybe he'll move to another party. It's not totally clear. As in every election, there's a a time-honored tradition of speculating about whether Ehud Barak, former prime minister, will rejoin the Labour Party. That talk ended with a bit of a whimper this week because he won't be doing it. The Labour Party does hold primaries on Sunday, and by then we'll know if the top runner, Merav Micheli, becomes one of the only women so far running as party leader. And even that is only partly significant because Labour is barely crossing the threshold for electoral votes in most surveys. It's not crossing the threshold in most surveys, but also Merav Micheli, assuming she wins, and since the other candidates are now pretty much non-entities, if she doesn't win, if she really doesn't deserve to win, Labour will probably join up with Ron Khulday's Israeli parties. Ron is already calling this new Labour for our British uh, listeners. That will certainly be an amusing development if Israel has its own new Labour, a neo-Blairite party. But I think what's interesting here is also how Merav Michaeli has emerged as as Labour's unlikely saviour, because, I mean, this is an incredible trajectory from someone who was originally a radio television star model evolved into a, a feminist activist and now she's uh, on the brink of becoming leader of israel's most historic party well Labour. sure but i'm not really sure what's so surprising about it i mean we have a lo- another time-honored tradition in israel is that journalists uh, and you know senior level political commentators from the media world uh, jump into politics. It's pretty normal. Shelly Yechimovich did it before her, also who came from the world of television, uh, a, a sort of a household face in Israel and became the head of the Labour Party. So I see it as a bit more consistent with the Israeli political culture in general. I agree, but the, the Labour has such a tired and old image. I mean, Abichaeli is someone who was always sort of on the cutting edge of Israeli uh, popular culture for so many years. It, it, you, if someone would have told you 10 years ago that Rami Kheli would, would become Labour leader, you would have said they were joking. Maybe, but I think that that is probably a good thing for Labour because I agree with you that they have really tired old image right now. And Meirav Mikhaili, I think we should point out that her one of the main things that most Israelis will know about her is, which you mentioned in passing, is her sort of pioneering language about feminism and putting the issue of feminism on the Israeli agenda and consciousness. I think she really is responsible for changing the discourse starting way back in, I don't know, the late 90s. So to my mind, if she does take over the Labour Party, maybe she'll breathe some new life into it. But who knows? We'll have to wait till Sunday to find out. Usually we bring in our jingle corner, our favorites from the extensive repertoire of Israeli election music. 
The Jewish Homes leadership race reminded me of a jingle which could well be the worst one ever used in the Israeli election. I'm talking about the jingle of Jewish Homes predecessor, the Mafdal, the venerable National Religious Party from the 1984 election. Putting aside that rather awful... Uh, I kind of liked it. Am I allowed to say that? Uh, there's, no, there's no accounting for taste, Dalia. Uh, putting aside the music, no ifs, no buts, vote Mafdal. In other words, a historic party is telling its voters they have no choice but to continue voting for them. The party's voters heard the jingle and fled. Mafdal won only four seats in that election. Seven years earlier, they had 12. That's the problem of Jewish Home and Labour, two historic parties among Israel's oldest who have taken their voters granted for too long and are both now on the brink of oblivion as a result. And that's all for our fourth episode of Election Overdose Podcast, brought to you by Haaretz. We'd like to thank our producers, Yonatan Menovich and Amir Faktor. We want to thank you, the listeners, for being here. We invite you to send questions that we will try hard to address in our future episodes. You can reach out to both of us on our Twitter accounts. You can DM us. We'd love to hear from you. You can find out about us on the Haaretz website. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other apps. We're looking forward to speaking with you again next Thursday. Meanwhile, shalom, ritraot, salamat from Haaretz Studios in Tel Aviv. Goodbye.